0: On today's episode, we'll be answering the health IT questions that were generated by Chat GPT. And be sure to follow the show on social media at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. Plus, check out our 17 years of health IT blog content at healthcareittoday.com. So, have you officially used Chat GPT for anything in your work yet, Colin?
1: No. uh uh, well other than the podcast other (laughs) than the podcast of this one but but no i have not used it to even look at topics or have it have it really you know come up with maybe an opening paragraph or something i'm writing i haven't i haven't done i've been i played with it just to see what it was like but i've tried uh,
0: two or three times but so far it hasn't been helpful (laughs) i don't know what that means
1: (laughs) it's more of a distraction i think (laughs) <laughs>
0: well I, you know it is interesting to see, and it's amazing how it's industry agnostic, right? Like it's being applied to so many. I just saw a headline that it's being applied to recipes. And that all those recipe bloggers are going to be gone because ChatGPT can do recipes better than them. And so every recipe blogger now is creating like 600 recipes using ChatGPT. I know why. By the way, you can download 600 recipes for fifty dollars or whatever. It's like wow. It's like it's it's impacting everything.
1: Yeah, it is. It is going to change. I mean, yeah. And then you hear about all the teachers trying to get you know the ChatGPT detector right and to see if anyone's submitting essays and things. It's it's uh, yeah it's gonna be it's definitely gonna be an interesting 2023 with that uh with that technology in place but it's yeah like um yeah i mean it just i think for us and as we found um i think it's it it does know a little bit um about a lot of things but it's not as deep as people who are experts in in the field yet right like it doesn't know enough about like our business to really ask the you know the deep insightful questions or come up with really truly insightful um articles in my mind but
0: And this is what begs the question, right, is, you know, those teachers that are trying to find out, did ChatGPT write this, et cetera, et cetera, right? Like, is that the wrong way to think about it? You know, should we be teaching them to use ChatGPT to make their essays better? So that then, you know, like, it's a tool for them to, to make them more efficient. So is the problem ChatGPT, or is the problem we're asking ChatGPT the wrong questions? And so you know, there's there's going to be a new term, I think, that comes out of it as far as someone who knows how to ask chat GPT the right questions to produce a great article that would pass for something of value or, or interest or whatever you're trying to solve. So I think right. that's maybe the nuance is that oh, maybe my kids are need to be trained on how to ask Ch- ChatGPT the right questions as opposed to, oh, if you ask ChatGPT, it gets a generic answer. Right.
1: Right. No, it's a it's an interesting one. I mean, I I I do look forward to the day where I could point chat, chat GPT to all the stuff I've written and go, okay, now write me an article in my style with this Oh, movie. And Then interesting. that would be, I'll be like, okay, that's interesting.
0: Right. <laughs> well, and we saw some of this, right? So when we were starting for this episode, we said, okay, let's just ask. And you know, we we made a really simple question. We said, Can we come, can you come up with four questions for a podcast on healthcare IT and put in parentheses technology? And ChatGPT came up with some really generic ones, like how is healthcare technology impacting the delivery of patient care? (laughs) Like, not so great, right? And so then we said, okay, can you make these more specific, (laughs) right? Like we asked it to do better, right? And it did. So those are the four (laughs) questions we're gonna do today.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So let's get started, John. So here's the first one from ChatGPT. How is the adoption of electronic health records or EHRs changing the way doctors and nurses document patient care.
0: So first, I want to note that it used EHR, not EMR, which is, you know, might be a point of contention for some doctors, doctors who still say EMR. It's amazing, you know, <laughs> a decade later, we're still fighting over EHR versus EMR. But ChatGPT understood EHR, which I think is interesting. <laughs> but it is also interesting that it points out document patient care. And I think the answer to that is clear. It's changed it completely. Mm -hmm. Uh, Although now it's just the standard. So chat GPT is a little behind, right? You know, I think, 10 years ago, this would have been a really interesting question. Like, how is it going to be different documenting an EHR versus paper? Unfortunately, I think the answer to that, we already know because it was a good question a decade ago, and now we know the answer. And the answer is it's creating bloated notes (laughs) that are full of a lot of documentation that isn't relevant to the actual patient visit, but is needed or Some might argue not needed, but, you know, that is inserted there for billing. And so I think that's the biggest thing that, you know, EHRs have changed is it's created these bloated notes in order to satisfy the billing because EHRs are big billing engines as much as they are anything else. And so that's the answer to the question. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. Obviously, right? We have the benefit of hindsight here, so I definitely think the documentation has completely changed from where it was pre EHR to post EHR. I think you're absolutely right to say it's all around billing and making billing very efficient. Today, we're starting to see some change to that, but. But for the last decade, it's pretty much been a billing system that, you know, happens to track some medical stuff too, right? Uh, But I would also add that, and this is not the fault of EHRs, but the fact that the data is now digital, I think it's actually made um, clinicians uh, in particular more defensive in terms of the way Mm. they document, because now it's so much easier to find faults and things wrong in the charts because they're electronic. So I think now we're erring on the side of, well, even if I don't need it f- to help the patient, I maybe want to track it because in case something happens, it's there, right? Uh, this data was there. I can show that I really meant this and that. Like So I, I, I can't help but wonder if we're also documenting way more because we're having to be more defensive in our mm-hmm. approach to documentation,
0: yeah, there's a lot of that in medicine. And, you know, this whole bloat topic is a, a popular one with your friends at Caroline, right? Uh, you know, that they're all about, you know, <laughs> trying to make these notes and the data usable. I, I think that's that's going to be the effort for this, you know, the next decade is how do we make it usable? You know, I, I think what's interesting, though, to your point is are all these extra notes and data going to cause the opposite problem where you said, Oh, you know, your heart rhythm was normal, but you didn't actually check it. And then it wasn't right. So the opposite can come at you too, right? Where if you're not really observing and checking the patient, is that going to be a problem? Of course, in the next decade, it's going to change dramatically, whether it's ambient clinical voice which is going to make it essentially chat (laughs) GPT style (laughs) notes for everyone. Like there's going to be no uniqueness in the, the story that's told by doctors and what's documented in the, in the visit. But then I'll also throw in all of the medical devices, including the remote patient monitoring companies that are gathering all this remote patient data. That's going to transform the documentation in the EHR well beyond anything that the doctor's going to input.
1: No, you're you're right. And thank you for mentioning our friends at Caroline. Uh, you know, in a recent article that I wrote about what, what the predictions were and what EHR companies are working on in 23, a lot of them wrote about how they're trying to make the notes and the documentation that's in their systems a lot more usable. Yes. So a lot of them were going to apply some AI uh, and, and machine learning to that to summarize the pages and pages of notes inside the EHR to present to someone initially uh, who may be new to that record. Uh, they were looking at mining the data to find what's the norm, and so it could point out when something is abnormal, right? And at least flag mm-hmm. it to you to say, "Hey, based on this patient's history, this is a little bit abnormal." This observation you just made, or this prior observation. So, I think the good news is, uh, hopefully, with the power of AI, we'll we'll get some better uh, EHR uh, value. Uh, but and that might actually, uh, I call, I'll call it justify why you're collecting all this information in the first place and doing it in such a discreet way manner.
0: Yeah, hopefully. And it's interesting to see Google get into this space. I think it's called Google Data Studio, if I remember right, something like that. And, you know, uh, Meditech's announced partnerships with Google and a number of those things. And I think it's Cerner did the other one, if I remember right. Uh, I think it was I think it was Cerner. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because I always looked at Google Data Studio and I'm like, how is this going to really be used? But then when you start seeing it integrated directly into the EHR, you're like, oh, okay. Maybe right. Google, you know, which mission is to take all of the, you know, the world's data and organize it. Could they do that in the HR? Well, you know, I, there's a lot of people that are skeptical that EHR vendors can do it. And so, you know, maybe it needs the horsepower of Google to do that more effectively.
1: We'll see. We'll see. And we'll see if Epic beats them to the punch, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, John, next question from our uh, chat GPT friend. Can you discuss the use of telemedicine and how it's being used to reach underserved communities?
0: Is chat GPT our friend? (laughs) Is chat GPT a woman or a man? Does it matter? Anyway. So, uh, you know, as far as the question, (laughs) uh, telemedicine, helps the underserved communities, but there's two barriers to it doing it effectively. And both of them are well understood by the government and regulators. The first is reimbursement, right? So if if I'm not going to be reimbursed for it, guess what? You're going to be driving into the... (laughs) The clinic and hospital, whatever it is, and you're going to be coming in because I'm not going to do telemedicine if you're not paying me for it. Right. And that's a problem that we know has major issues. You know, we've seen some progress. There's a lot of organizations, the ATA, et cetera, that are really lobbying for continued payment for telehealth. So let's start with that, right? Reimbursement. But the second one is obvious is, is around connectivity. And, you know, I think we have kind of this first world urban city perspective. It's like, well, of course we have connectivity. Yeah, maybe there's only one provider that you hate, but you have it, right? (laughs) Like you have options and in many places, there's multiple, but in a lot of rural environments, they don't necessarily want it like, and there are, you know, FTC has come out with a ton of uh, grants to be able to do rural uh, broadband and, and there's options there. And I think we'll also see stuff like Starlink with, uh, from, um, Elon Musk that will open up those areas as well, where you'll be able to get, you know, broadband internet to places that you just, it doesn't make economic sense to run fiber or, or, you know, whatever you might run. Uh, So I think that will open up, but until there's still a major connectivity problem in many rural areas. So it's like as much telehealth as you want to talk about, that's not going to happen. Although you do can call, right? So if you consider calling telehealth, then it's still powerful as well. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, um, uh, you know, to me, the, the key point of the question, the, the, what I zero in on, is really the underserved, the definition of underserved. Mm. I think, in terms of geographically underserved patients, I think telemedicine and and telehealth has helped. Right? If I if I needed to see a specialist, now I don't have to drive. 100 miles to see that specialist in that city, I could maybe do that consult via telehealth, provided I do have, you know, internet access and so forth. Um, so I think for for that underserved definition, I think telemedicine has helped, right? I mean, we hear about yep. these stories. I know we've written a few, John, uh, I wrote one about in, in BC, you know, how it saved people driving over the mountain to get to the one specialist is located in Vancouver, right, which is pretty far away from the rural areas. So I definitely think in terms of underserved geographically that has definitely helped. And you know nowhere more than mental health, right? Before mm-hmm. you would have to maybe drive a long way to go see a mental health specialist. Telemedicine is perfect for that kind of thing. And now I don't have to drive, I can do it from the safety of my own home. You know, there's no stigma about doing that. So that I definitely think has helped. However, the other part that you mentioned, I think for people who first of all has doesn't have stable internet access, doesn't have the economic means to do that. I don't think telehealth has made a difference, right? Like they didn't have the capability to do it before. I doubt just because a doctor was offering it that they're suddenly availing themselves of that service, right? I think access to healthcare in general was the problem, not access to telehealth, right? So I think it might have helped a few, right? Especially in the in the urban areas where there are some programs where you can get a free iPad to take home and then you can see the doc, you know, in the comfort of your home. I think maybe it's helped in those very narrow areas, but I don't think in general, telemedicine has made a huge difference for those that are socioeconomically underserved.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that I, I went underserved rural. I don't know, there's probably something in my head I need to work through. But, uh, you know, it, you're right, though, they underserved. Uh, I, I think there's a, another element that's interesting, which is, okay, maybe you have access to telehealth. That's great. But then it goes to all the SDOH, the social determinants of health. Okay, now you saw the doctor and you said, go pick up the script. Well, if you don't have transportation to get the script, if you can't afford the script, if you can't, you know, whatever else it might be, that's still a problem. So you're like, okay, you know, it's almost like identifying the problem and being like, good luck, right? (laughs) Like, I know you have a heart condition, but I can't help you. So I, I think that's the challenge is like telehealth can open us up. To understanding what the problem is, but if we don't have the SDOH backbone to help support it, that's a problem. As far as access, though, it's interesting. I think of organizations like Care on Location uh, that do the kind of telehealth in a box. And, you know, I can't remember if it was them or someone else that like they actually give it to like the fire station. And then anyone in that community can go to the fire station and just do their telehealth visit or things like that. So I think there are some really creative approaches that organizations are doing where it's like, okay, They don't have the device, they don't have the broadband, but could we do this as a community? And we're seeing this even more internationally where, you know, that's an even bigger issue. And so then you could have one care on location box in the community center, in the library, whatever it might be, right? That they could go there and get some services without, you know, and serve the whole community as opposed to like every person needs their own device. I'd
1: definitely be interested to hear what our friend Abner Mason over at Same Sky Health has to say about this, right? With, you know, his work and his company with all the payers, you know, are they getting into what you just said, you know, providing devices and connectivity for people in order to access care in order to keep the cost of care down, because otherwise they might be going to the ER, right? Um, yep. For the care, which is very expensive. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lin and Colin Hung. Today, we're answering health IT questions generated by Chat GPT. All right, John's up. Here's the next one, generated by that AI engine. How is the healthcare industry using artificial intelligence and machine learning to improve patient outcomes?
0: Yeah, the key challenge there for me is that last part to improve patient outcomes. Um, I'm 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 not sure it has as that much yet and i'll underscore the yet right i think most of the implementations of artificial intelligence and machine learning have been focused largely on more the business side of things in healthcare because those are safe they're 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 easier to to measure you know you don't have to worry about the risk to the liabilities etc so you know we've seen it happening across all sorts of healthcare but it started with the business case And so, you know, it's interesting. There's a, I saw on Twitter, uh, one of these entrepreneurs, I forget her name, but uh, she was tweeting out and she actually did double down on this tweet. So that's why I saw it twice. And she talked about, patient outcomes are the new measure. And then she said, and it probably always should have been that way. <laughs> and, and she's not wrong, right? Like, uh, although I think that, you know, the only exception would be, there are some business use cases where patient outcomes aren't the important measure for that effort. Uh, however, when you look at the clinical side, yeah, having patient outcomes is that goal that you can take to a, a, a clinic and say, you know, our hospital and be like, "Hey, these are the outcomes we can produce and that we've shown and we've measured." Uh, and so I think that we're still in that discovery stage, though, I think, on the patient outcome side,
1: yeah, i I, I would answer this question slightly differently. Um I would say that, I agree with you in the sense that I don't think AI and ML have really made a huge impact in what I would call direct care. Like I don't think anybody is using it to diagnose somebody or obviously to treat somebody or anything like that yet. I think there's a lot of liability, a lot of risks, and a lot of unknowns uh, related to that. However, I think there's a lot of indirect ways that it is actually impacting patient outcomes in the sense that I do think that there are organizations, whether they are healthcare or payers, who are applying AI to the giant stores of data they have and being able to create better programs and better treatment options for different cohorts of patients which they were never able to do before, right? So they're able to look at a cohort and say, well, why aren't these people who are diabetic taking advantage of these diabetes programs? well, now I can identify them a lot easier and maybe I can tailor something uh, better towards them, to them using AI, right? Like using AI to connect with them, using AI to to prompt them. And so I think indirectly AI can improve outcomes, but it's not the AI itself that's doing it. It's sort of more that it's, it's moving them towards a program that's a better fit. Also, I think uh, we've talked about it before, AI is definitely helping in terms of improving the workflow For a lot of clinicians, especially in the radiology area, right? By prioritizing certain images over others and so forth. So I think there's some indirect benefit there in the sense that those patients are now getting to the top of the list, getting seen a little bit faster, getting their reads done a lot earlier. And so therefore maybe entering treatment a little bit earlier. Yeah. So I think we're seeing some indirect benefit, but you're right. It's not like there's a robot treating me uh, that's powered by AI.
0: yet. (laughs) Not for a long time. I I think you're right. The population health value-based care kind of perspective needs the AI and machine learning to be able to do it effectively. I'd throw in one other element that I think is part of this. And it's kind of along the same lines of what you were talking about, which is how do you scale helping a patient population? right because the the 15 minute visit doesn't scale to a population of 5,000, right? <laughs> like, in the, how do you do that? Especially when you're talking about remote patient monitoring and the data at home and, you know, what, what do they say? You know, the 99% of your time is spent outside of the exam room or whatever the stat is, right? Like, you know, it, it's like, you're, you're not there, right? So how do we do that at scale? And the only answer I think to that question is the AI and machine learning and technology and communication. It's all of that packaged together in a way that says, oh, I can do that with 5,000 people and I can just bubble up the stuff that really matters to the human. So it's definitely a partnership, right? Like the AI doesn't necessarily treat the person. It doesn't solve the problem, but it can engage 5,000 patients all at once in a really inexpensive way because technology is great for that. And then understand, okay, these are the 10 that actually need some human intervention. Let's deal with them. And here's 50 that a nurse could take care of. They don't even need the doctor, et cetera. So I think that, kind of filtering and and scalability is the real impact. And, you know, that will impact outcomes in a big way, similar to what you described.
1: John, let's head for the last question here. Number four from ChatGPT. Can you discuss the challenges of implementing and maintaining a successful healthcare IT infrastructure and what solutions are being proposed to address these challenges?
0: (laughs) What we should have done is we should have asked chat GPT the answer to this question. (laughs) (laughs) Like we should have turned to all four and maybe we'll do that in the, uh, the show notes. If you want to go check it out, I'll go ask all four of these questions and see what chat GPT answers for each of these and how it compares to ours. But anyways, uh, I I mean, this is actually a really interesting question that no one talks about because it's not sexy to talk about health IT infrastructure, right? Like it's not, you know, it's, it's not fun to be like, Oh, I got this aging data center and these servers that are on their last leg. And what do I do? And do I move (laughs) it to the cloud or do I not, do I keep it in house? Does the vendor even support the cloud in what way? And that's another project to be able to make sure the data goes seamlessly. And I got to upgrade, you know, the system to a new system to be able to go to the cloud and, you know, Oh, and by the way, I have a thousand desktops. So what do I do with them? Do I move to the virtual and use, you know, VMware's virtualized system? (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, do I get rid of Citrix, right? Or do I keep Citrix, right? Do I, like all of these questions are just hangover. In many cases, it's the CTO. The CIO has often taken this, you know, and said, hey, CTO, you're in charge of this because I want to do more strategic things. Uh, But, you know, man, it it is a big challenge. I mean, it reminds me of when I asked the CIO a decade ago, hey, what's the thing that no one's talking about? And he said, Windows XP needs to be replaced. I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot you're still dealing with that. Right. Like, <laughs> and so I, I think there's all of these infrastructure challenges that are, you know, a burden on the IT professional that we just kind of take for granted because you're like, it, it works, you know, and <laughs> until it doesn't and then it becomes a problem.
1: Yeah, I, I hard, hard to disagree with you there, John. I, I definitely think. First of all, there's so much to consider now. You know, before it was just, you know, hey, what's what's my WAN? What's my LAN, right? And what are, what are some of the computers I've got? Now we've got all these IOMT devices. We've got everything connected to each other. Uh, we've got Wi-Fi and cellular uh, 5G connections that are necessary. So just the number of, of technologies that you have to maintain is, is difficult. Um, I think on top of that, uh, the bigger challenge for me is definitely uh, people and budget. Right? Mm-hmm. I think getting uh, hiring people and keeping people in this space to help with the IT infrastructure, let's be honest, not a lot of people are sort of putting number one on their list working for a healthcare organization right? that's in tech. So we've talked about this before. I think that's a big challenge. But I also think budgets, just for the same reason you just mentioned, it's all behind the scenes stuff. It's really hard to, to say, hey, look, I need a million dollars to go and upgrade our Wi-Fi. Whereas <laughs> another person can say, well, I need a million dollars because I want to hope put in a whole new CT suite. Right, or or contribute towards the CT suite. You're like, wow, one generates revenue and the other one just sort of keeps the lights on. Right. It's it's really hard. I I feel for CIOs who who have to go in and justify these infrastructure investments because it's only when it's not there or when it fails that people go, oh. Yeah, I probably should have been investing in that,
0: right? Yeah, and then um, you end up paying twice as much, which is the real problem. It's interesting, though, like, I mean, you, you're right that the, the, the layout of IT infrastructure has expanded. But the interesting thing is, like, IOTMT and, and those types of things, those are still kind of sexy, right? Like, RTLS, <laughs> like, you want to go do that. Whereas... You know, like I think about the carts on wheels and, you know, companies like Innovate Medical have educated me so much on many of the systems are like, yeah, we just want to outsource the maintenance to you. Like you come and change the battery. We don't need to think about that anymore. Right. And so right. we've seen that change, right. Even the zebra tablet that I, 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 you know, the, the review is out, like as far as, you know, their, the new tablet, when you look at what they did, they, there's a replaceable battery that can be changed in 10 seconds. Right. Like, cause they're thinking about, you know, this has to last six years plus and how do we maintain it? And how do we make it easy for them to maintain the infrastructure? And it's like, that's not sexy stuff to talk about though. Like how am I going to upgrade my tablet devices or make sure they last or what happens when the battery dies, right? (laughs) Like that's not as fun as thinking about the, the, the latest NFC or the, the robotics that's transferring, you know, the drugs throughout the clinic that that, that's more exciting to deal with. So I think it often gets left to the side.
1: I agree. You know, and there's companies, you know, just talking about the infrastructure side, the company like NetScout, right, that builds tools to help you figure out all these endpoints, right? You can just run their little tools and it will tell you, hey, you've got endpoints here, here, and here, these ones haven't been updated, these ones have, uh, at least to help give you a fighting chance uh, to, you know, to maintain that. There's also companies that you can outsource your the, the performance, right, where they monitor the performance of your applications, whether that be Cerner or Epic or, uh, you know, Greenway, whatever application you're running, I and mean, it can monitor that and say, hey, is the fault with the cloud? Is the fault with your infrastructure? Is the fault with the with the actual device that it's running on. So lots of different tools that are available out there. And and hopefully using what you said, John, the IOMT as the catalyst, use that to get some of these tools in there, right? You're, you're going to need them, but hey, why don't you adopt the tool that not only will help you with IOMT, but all your other infrastructure as well. I think that's kind of a smart thing for CIOs to be doing.
0: It's just getting more complicated too. That that That's the challenge.
1: <laughs> it is, it is. And hey, we're at the end of another episode. We gotta thank ChatGPT for generating these questions today. It was kind of interesting to discuss these questions from that AI engine. But thanks to all of you who tuned into this episode of Healthcare IT Today. For more details about our show, check out the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com. And on social media using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hung with my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lane. Thanks for listening and have a great week.